Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 232, Evangelicals. Before we do anything else, very quickly, calling all members. I just wanted to check that you all know how membership works. So this is, once you've signed up for membership, you get access to a complete new set of podcasts from me that we call the Shedcasts. And you also get access to a members-only area on the website. Now, you can download the Shedcasts to your mobile, whatever device you use, and most podcast apps will accommodate password-protected podcasts just like the Shedcast. You set up the members-only podcast as a separate series, though. It doesn't come through with the free History of England. If you're having any difficulties at all, get in touch with me through the website or by emailing me at david54031 at gmail.com. That is david54031 at gmail.com. I want to start with an all-important concept, which you are probably all very well aware of, but just can't be stressed enough. At some indefinable time, we move from what we call medieval to early modern. Now, of course, these are modern tags. At the time, folks wouldn't have called themselves Mr and Mrs Early Modern. But despite the righteous fury that historians understandably visit on the bowed head of such tags, they exist and survive because there is some important truth in them. The modern world is not different just because of technology, but because of the way we think and what we value. I can hear cracking all around me as I step onto the ice of a subject way too deep for me, but I would argue that by and large in the Western world, we value diversity, independence, individuality, freedom and liberty of conscience. I don't think I'm saying anything particularly radical here. Now, a basic pillar of medieval Christendom was absolutely not that. 
a pillar of medieval Christendom, was uniformity, particularly uniformity of religion. And the death of the medieval idea of uniformity of religion is a fundamental and seismic change. No one understood better than Thomas More that it was heresy that challenged that uniformity. As I have painfully belaboured, Thomas More did not give his life for what we might call liberty of conscience. He thought the very concept of liberty of conscience stood at the pinnacle of suckiness, a veritable mountain of suck. More was a brave and brilliant man who died for the uniformity of the church, for the primacy of the community of the church to choose over the subordinated rights of the individual. Let me read you a quote I have read before, but which just sums it up so well. More here is talking to his son-in-law, William Roper, who himself had dabbled and toyed with the new Lutheran ideas before returning to the fold. And yet, son Roper, I pray God that some of us, as high as we seem to sit upon the mountains, treading heretics under our feet like ants, live not in the day we gladly would wish to be at league and composition with them, so to let them have their churches quietly to themselves, so that they would be content to let us have ours quietly to ourselves. The story of the 16th and 17th centuries is to some degree at least the bloody and murderous death of the ideal of uniformity. Hundreds of thousands, possibly millions, will die until Europe finally realises that the future that more feared and despised was the only possible way forward now. There was a price to pay in England as well. Now, one of the unintended consequences of Henry's approach is that the price in England was much lower than in many parts of Europe, but there was still a price to be paid, and to be paid in blood. To put it another way, the ideal of uniformity will die hard. It's not a Catholic thing, it's a Christian thing. Protestant states will try just as hard to impose uniformity. So, as you listen over the next century, just keep in your mind, this stuff was not easy. People had got used to uniformity over the last 1500 years. Cathars, Waldensians, Hussites without number had been butchered to defend it. We've made the point, I think, that the medieval church in England was nowhere in as bad a state as it used to be thought. And the old story of a corrupt and rotten church falling apart is just no longer supportable. But although it's the current fashion to emphasise the vitality of the late medieval church in what is clearly a subject deeply affected by historical fashions, it's equally clear that folks like Collett were not complaining about nothing, that the church was vulnerable in many areas. It was indeed open to criticism. And as the winds of new ideas swept into England, it's too easy to simply cynically wave a hand and pretend a beautiful institution was brought down by a top-down desire for the royal supremacy and to get their hands on the wealth of the church. If the idea that the medieval church was actually rocking belonged to the revisionists still, though I suspect they've moved to establishment status now, the counter-revisionists point to the seaports, to London, to the old areas of Lollard strength, such as the Chilterns, as evidence of a small but significant bottom-up evangelical and reformist movement in the 1520s. Because the Reformation in England was not just a matter of a reaction against church wealth or corruption or desire for church lands, it wasn't just about negative things. It was also a positive matter of theology and belief. As we've heard in the early days, the English church was not very worried about Luther, although Bishop Tunstall was horrified by Luther's writings and exclaimed, I pray God, keep that book out of England. After a sweep through the Chilterns in 1521 and a bunch of abjurations, 
Woolsey and Fisher's book burnings. Until we get to the mid-1520s, everything seemed calm. No one had been burned. Into this story came William Tyndale. Now, I'm sorry to say that I'm going to keep the full story of Tyndale and his Bible for you members, and we'll have a biography episode on Tyndale's life, his translation, and the influence of his translation on the English Bible. But nonetheless, the story of the English Reformation is not complete without him. Tyndale was a young man from Gloucester when in 1524 he left London for Hamburg in Germany, convinced that his passion to translate the Bible into English would only be possible outside of England. Now there had been English Bibles before. Parts of it had been available in the good old days of Anglo-Saxon England and Wycliffe supporters had produced one as well. Both, though, were translated from the Vulgate Bible, the official Bible in Latin produced in the 4th century. In 1526, working from the original Greek, Tyndale completed his first Bible, the Worms New Testament. In its first edition, it was disappointingly small and unimpressive in format, in octavo, which might seem strange for such an important document, but look, it was illegal. The last thing you wanted was a massive Bible you had to pull around you in a cart. Octavo could fit inside your poacher's pocket, no problem. There should be more time to wax lyrical about the beauty of Tyndale's language. If I can be permitted a brief lament, I was brought up in a more religious age when the words and phrases of the Bible were all around me, and so many of them I carry with me, like the bit of Latin I carry around, and godless though I am, I believe I'm the richer for it. In England, there are fewer and fewer who know those words, and it's a shame. Here endeth the lesson. So, I'll warble more about the language in the Shedcasts, but here let me just first note that from his 1526 and 1534 Bible, phrases like, The last shall be first, and the first shall be last, in the heat of the day, my brother's keeper, were all brought into our language to enrich it. Tyndale had a talent for words, phrases, grabbing the essence of meaning and delivering it in an immediate, inspirational and economical way. His second version, his 1534 Bible, would form the basis of the King James Bible, which would last for hundreds of years and take the English language across the world. When I say basis, I mean 93%. So basically, the committee James I set up, adapted and edited Tyndale's Bible. Thousands of copies were printed, in all, probably the number reached about 16,000, and they made their way from Germany and the Low Countries into England, despite all that more Bishops Tunstall and Fisher, and indeed Henry himself, of course, could do to stop it. This included the slightly absurd spectacle of Wolsey and Fisher solemnly burning the Bible at St Paul's. But the point about this is twofold. Firstly, the church genuinely believed that the Bible needed explanation by experts. It wasn't a matter of repression, but care for people's souls to avoid them being led into error. And secondly, a translation is not a neutral document, and Tyndale had no intention whatsoever of being a neutral, honest broker. Make no bones about it. Tyndale's Bible was a piece of propaganda. It's not that he was inaccurate. It's just that he made choices other than those on which the church had based itself for the last thousand years. For example, Tyndale translated the Greek ecclesia as congregation rather than as church. Suddenly, the justification for the whole need for and structure of the church was weakened. 
Thomas More understood the subversive nature of this Bible and immediately piled into Tyndale, at one stage writing a furious 2,000-page ramble to refute Tyndale's works. Tyndale only replied once, as it happens. In this particular example, he was infuriatingly able to quote Erasmus, beloved of More and all the humanists, of course, because Erasmus himself, in his translation of the Bible, had also used the word congregatio for ecclesia. But Tyndale, of course, was producing his Bible in a very different context and with different motivations than had Erasmus. Putting the language aside, the English Bible transformed the situation in England. Firstly and obviously, the Bible was available to far more people, to anyone able to read and able to get their hands on it. Secondly, it tended to help reduce the debate to a deceptively simple question. What came first? The tradition of the church and her fathers, or, quite simply, what was written in the scripture? This gave the church a communication problem. The evangelical message that, if it isn't in the Bible, it has no authority, is an easy, clear and comprehensible one. The church's message was much more complicated, nuanced and difficult to explain. And finally, try as they might, the church were vulnerable to the accusation that they were simply and repressively withholding the word of God from their own people. Their answer, that it was complicated, however genuinely meant, was not only complicated, it smacked of arrogance and a lack of trust. In addition, the fact that the bishops in England refused to produce a vernacular Bible, even though countries all over Europe had vernacular Bibles, made them look even worse. And so, from the mid-1520s, the church faced an increasing challenge. Now, at first, many of the groups were probably far from heretical, certainly in intent. They were simply discussing their faith. An interpretation of the faith was a regular feature of the church. The group meeting at the White Horse Pub in Cambridge, for example, was probably originally of that nature, rather than the hotbed of radicalism as painted by Fox in his Book of Martyrs. But Cambridge did indeed become an engine room of heresy. In 1525, one Robert Barnes, prior of an Augustinian house in Cambridge, broke cover, and he preached that Christians were no more bound to serve God on holy days than any other day, amongst other things, and was hauled in front of the authorities. Bishop Fisher actually seems to have struggled to disagree with Barnes on that particular point, but he pronounced that it was foolish to preach this before the butchers of Cambridge, which rather enforced the charge of exclusivity. The rule of a heresy charge was that you could turn or burn once. On this occasion, Barnes turned and abjured. Another Cambridge man was Thomas Bilney, who also broke cover in 1525. Now these sermons had a viral impact, of course, affecting others as they went. No doubt many angrily rejected the heretical and killjoy views that relic veneration was superstitious and that pilgrimage was of no more good for the soul than a caravan holiday in Dorset, but others nodded their heads in agreement and spoke to others. The old Lollard communities were refreshed and encouraged, since many of the views mirrored their own, and without doubt the first converts were amongst the Lollards. It's generally accepted that you cannot draw a straight line from humanism to the Reformation. However, the debate about language and ideas naturally drew the interest of humanist scholars, there's a particularly powerful image Erasmus used of a farmer singing the New Testament at his plough. Tyndale himself used this image, and it fed the thirst for the English Bible. 
Erasmus strenuously denied that he supported Luther's heresies, but inevitably the evangelicals fed off his works. It's worth noting also that many would have been horrified to know that when they were listening to a sermon by one of these men like Barnes or Bilney, that they were listening to heresy. Many were pulled into evangelicanism without even knowing it. Men like Bilney, and in particular his colleagues such as Hugh Latimer, were enthusiastic and powerful preachers. So, there you go. You wander through the fields with your friends and family on a Sunday to hear a licensed preacher talk. Up pops a Robert Barnes, Thomas Bilney or Hugh Latimer, and has a go at things that on reflection do seem a little dicey, and you nod your head, without realising that these were views that would be considered heresy from men who would one day burn. As evangelical ideas spread, the Low Countries were critical. The city of Antwerp in particular was the centre of printing and a steady stream of books found their way into England. Although the Low Countries were in the Holy Roman Empire and therefore might be thought a bastion of orthodoxy or if not of repression, in fact all these towns and cities had a fierce and proud tradition of independence as we've seen in the past with the history of Ghent in times gone by. Here also was the English house, the base of the merchant adventurers, outside the grasp of the authorities and increasingly radicalised. Tyndale set himself up near Antwerp and produced a number of evangelical tracts, Wicked Mammon and in 1528 The Obedience of the Christian Man. This latter is the very book that Anne pressed into Henry's hands and soon Thomas Cromwell even got close to persuading Henry that Tyndale should be allowed back into England. He came within a Rizzler paper of it. But in 1530, Tyndale then wrote The Practice of the Prelates, which argued fiercely against the king's divorce, poured scorn on the theology of it. Tyndale was like that. He had a mission, and he would say it as he saw it, rather than saying what was expedient. Henry was livid, and that was that. Although Cromwell didn't give up hope, actually. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Alongside Tyndale, others also published. Simon Fish, John Frith and others. And back over went these seditious and invigorating books, hidden in the pages of innocent books, or passed off as stocks of blank paper. The English bishops searched and burnt. On occasion, they even bought. There's a lovely occasion when Bishop Tunstall went and tried to buy every copy of Tyndale's Bible, which seems rather odd. Tyndale was reportedly delighted as the revenues flowed in. Still, in 1528, the situation appeared containable to Moore and the bishops. Two well-known evangelicals, Garrett and Farman, who had been instrumental in spreading books, were caught and they agreed to abjure. In December 1527, after a trial and a dean of honest argument by both sides, Thomas Bilney himself and another Cambridge radical, Thomas Arthur, agreed to recant as well. There were other sources of evangelicals, though, one of which was the inns of court and the legal practice where lawyers trained together and received a healthy dose of anti-clericalism to boot. 
From that stable came Simon Fish and his supplication of the beggars, another man who would have seen this happening in the legal practice around him and have lots of contact with it, was, of course, Thomas Cromwell. Supplication of the beggars lit a fire in London and upped the temperature. By 1529, the quality of the struggle was changing. Henry reconfirmed the prohibition of unlicensed books, and Moore was given a licence to read heretical texts in English. From his pen came a stream of rebuttals and scathing criticism. As the argument intensified, so do did the lines between heretic and Catholic get drawn more harshly. One historian points out that both sides acquire names. Evangelicals are accused of being Lutherans, which sounds fine now. But then it came with the implication that these are people stupid enough to be led astray by a dishonest and charismatic charlatan. Meanwhile, on the other side, the word papist enters the language as an insult. Moore is astonished that adherence to the Pope can be considered an insult, but for evangelicals, the Popes and worldly excesses of their servants, such as Wolsey, led them to be branded antichrist. This kind of vitriol on both sides made the honest early desire of the church to persuade rather than burn harder and harder to achieve. The king's developing antipathy to the Pope made the job of the counter-insurgents more difficult, though Moore's appointment as Chancellor in 1530 was of course a boon. But in the fevered atmosphere of Henry's divorce and his slow move towards the supremacy, anyone saying a bad word about the Pope stood an even's chance of becoming the king's friend. For this reason, Robert Barnes was allowed back into England to Moore's fury, and the Cambridge scholar and evangelical Edward Crome was able to escape conviction for heresy. Still, Moore was able to contemptuously taunt the evangelicals that they boasted not one martyr, unlike the long line of Catholic martyrs stretching down the centuries, though he carefully ignored the Lollard martyrs, of course. Until, on the 23rd of February 1530, a Norfolk priest called Thomas Hitton was burned to death at Maidstone in Kent. Now, without wanting to cast any aspersions, it's difficult not to think that there might have been a very small part of the evangelical psyche which welcomed, at last, a martyr for their cause. The thing is that martyrs were potent examples and indicators of truth in the Christian mentality, venerated as they were. An evangelical joyfully added Hitton's name to a calendar of Christian martyrs and more was incensed, calling Hitton the devil's stinking martyr. But it was the start of a trend, for now as Chancellor, Moore harnessed the machinery of the state to a heightened campaign against heresy. While he was Chancellor, six men were burned as heretics, and three more were burned soon after he resigned. One of those burned was Thomas Bilney, who regretted his earlier abjuration and went back to preach. The example of martyrs was, predictably enough, more of an encouragement to the evangelicals than a deterrent. James Bainham was arrested in 1531 and abjured, but like Bilney and many others, within a month his conscience defeated him and he stood up in church and preached with the obedience of a Christian man clutched to his breast. At his second trial he denied purgatory and transubstantiation and was condemned to burn. A huge crowd saw him burn and the Venetian ambassador reported that he died with the greatest fortitude. When Thomas Bilney had been burned at the Lollard's Pit in Norwich, many considered him a victim of an over-severe punishment of a mild, possibly even innocent man. 
People muttered that the church was using the heresy charge as a technique to victimise innocent men, just as the church had done with Richard Hunn all those years ago in 1515. But more also turned to put the squeeze on book runners. In late 1530, for example, a clutch of heretical book readers were paraded through the streets of London, facing backwards on horseback, covered with English New Testaments fixed to their cloaks. Book distributors and printers were discovered and imprisoned. But by the time of Moore's resignation from the Chancellorship, the King's great matter had played havoc with the boundary lines again. What exactly was heresy anymore, now that the Pope was the King's enemy? And meanwhile, Henry and Cromwell rode the tide of secular anti-clericalism in Parliament and further confused matters. Twice at least, in London, a mob descended on heresy trials and the accused were released. At Mendelsham in Suffolk, the Lord there reported that hundreds at a time were gathering in the fields to listen to heretical sermons. The language of heresy was now in the air, and while more burnings followed, it seemed impossible to stop the talking. Evangelism was also endemic in the language of court, as Chapuis noted with despair. And critically, by the 1530s, the evangelicals had supporters in position of power to protect them. Evangelicals could be bolder, as people like Anne Boleyn and Thomas Cromwell might protect many of them from prosecution. With the arrival of Archbishop Cranmer and then Anne's bishops, Shaxton, Latimer, Hilsey, Evangelicals began to become part of a church that was now divided within itself in its opinions. The career of Hugh Latimer is a good example. Latimer is the man beloved of economic historians since he provided the sweetest and most succinct description of a yeoman. My father was a yeoman and had no lands of his own, only he had a farm of three or four pound by year where he tilled enough to keep half a dozen men. In addition to a walk for a hundred sheep, his mother kept a diary and milked thirty kine. Hugh Latimer came from Thurkeston in Leicestershire, right in the middle of England, in Thurkeston, gentle listeners. Why did nobody ever tell me? I could have waved at him from my house when I was a lad if I hadn't been five hundred years between us. Good golly, Miss Molly. Briefly then, Latimer was a white horse pub man converted by Thomas Bilney, and would be one of the greatest evangelical speakers of his age. Like many of his fellows, while he took enormous risks in his preaching, when questioned, he twisted and turned and equivocated to avoid being silenced or burned. So, for example, in 1525, the Bishop of Ely came unannounced to Cambridge to hear Latimer preach in the university church, no doubt hoping to catch the lad red-handed. When Bishop West asked him to denounce Luther, Latimer replied disingenuously that no one was allowed to read his works, and so he couldn't be acquainted with his opinion. I have to say it also makes you realise that for many years until Moore pressed the red button, the English church had clearly been taking lessons from the Spanish Inquisition and was seeking to expunge heresy mainly with the use of soft cushions. In 1531, Latimer acquired a protector in the form of Anne Boleyn, who gave him a living in Wiltshire in the West Country. He used it as a springboard to preach more boldly, and on the 11th of March 1532 he was caught, and he was called before convocation to face charges that he had impugned purgatory, prayers for the dead, the intercession of the saints, pilgrimages, fasting and the veneration of the crucifix and other images. Latimer appealed to the king as the highest authority under God, but he was excommunicated and imprisoned, but then his loyalty to the king won his release in April. 
1533, then, Latimer grew bolder still and recorded a famous triumph in a series of radical sermons at Bristol, resulting in accusations that he'd done as much damage as Luther. All of this must have given a mixture of exhilaration and terror as the old order was threatened and in return threatened death. A flavour comes across when in 1535 Thomas More saw Latimer in a high-spirited moment in the garden of Lambeth Palace. Latimer was very merry and laughing as he cast his arms round Cranmer's chaplains in triumph. By 1536, Latimer was Bishop of Worcester and More was dead and the positions had been reversed. For the remainder of Henry's reign, as we will discover as we go through them over the next few weeks and months, understanding where the boundaries lay between heresy and rectitude was an increasingly difficult task. Henry's drive to royal supremacy and the submission of the clergy muddied the waters. The promotion of some evangelical bishops, together with the execution of Moore and Fisher, made it seem that the king had moved towards evangelism. But then many bishops, like Tunstall and Stephen Gardner, remained deeply traditional and remained in place. And Hugh Latimer, for example, was to find that being Bishop of Worcester was to be a limited appointment. Meanwhile, across the water, Tyndale had published his 1534 version of the New Testament and the first five books of the Old Testament from the original Hebrew this time. He had little time to celebrate, though. He'd been befriended by a man called Henry Phillips, whom Tyndale welcomed as a fellow countryman. Unbeknown to him, Phillips had gambled away his money and fled his debtors in England, and now he saw a chance to make good. And so he betrayed Tyndale and delivered him to the imperial authorities. Despite the desperate efforts of Tyndale's friends to free him, on the 6th of October 1536, William Tyndale was tied to a stake in chains and cried out, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Then he was strangled before his body was burned. Henry, as I say, will wander about in his views. As we'll see, it's far too simple to say, for example, that Henry died a Catholic. His theology would move constantly between evangelical and traditional, building a steadily increasing atmosphere of suspicion, fear and treachery, fed by confusion and vicious state reprisals. And one of the things that fed that atmosphere was a fear of a particular sect, the Anabaptists. As far as Henry was concerned for the rest of his life, Anabaptist was a four-letter word. To fully appreciate the story of Anabaptist monster, I ask you to step back in time and put on the attitudes of the English yeomanry. Your life has been dominated by the turn of the seasons, the needs of your family, the certainties of religion and hierarchy, into which you willingly and fervently fit. The excitement of life are about family and Making a living, extraordinary events are rare, except maybe four years ago when Aunt Maud caught her left tit in the mangle. Recently, there have been changes and rumours. The split with Rome has been unsettling, but that's about it. And then one day a stranger is at Mass, and afterwards, since it's a sunny day, you join a group to listen to his story under the beech tree on the green. Essentially, in the soup of religious thinking in Northern Europe in the 1520s, a group of folk challenged the idea of infant baptism. It's not in the scriptures, they say, and it robs the grown person from making their own choice. Anabaptism means, literally, baptised again. Doesn't seem unreasonable, but as it happens, even Luther retained baptism as a sacrament, so this made them seriously unpopular. But the idea spread into Switzerland and Germany and into the Low Countries. And then in 1525, unconnectedly, you get the Peasants' Revolt in Germany, the Peasants' Revolt to end all Peasants' Revolts, 
that makes 1381 and Jack Cade look like, well, words fail me, look like ordering a scone, jam and clotted cream at the June fete and getting a bit of cream on his Sunday best. The German peasantry assume Luther's ideas mean social change, we're all equal in the eyes of gods, so why not now and all of that and rise up? Luther disowns them. The nobility come along and, in the words of Wilfred Owen, slew his son and half the seed of Europe one by one. Fast forward five years and join one Melchior Hoffman. Melchior was an Anabaptist and he'd decided that the second coming was at hand as well. 1533 was to be the year to be precise, to be followed by the thousand-year rule of the saints. The New Jerusalem, he thought, was going to be Strasbourg, in which, of course, he was only a few years too early until the European Union arrived, but he didn't know that. And anyway, the authorities didn't like this bloke causing all this chaos, so they threw him into the deepest dungeon where he lived out his last 11 years. However, he had influenced another Anabaptist, a baker from Harlem called Jan Mathis, though I think a Dutchman would frown at me and his name would go on a bit longer. Jan thought Melchior had the fundamentals right, but he'd got the timing wrong, and his pacifism, that was all wrong as well. So, Jan got his congregation in Amsterdam to recognise him as one of the two witnesses whom the Revelations 11 described as having the duty to punish the wicked cities of the world, which gave him, incidentally, carte blanche to visit pretty much any level of violence he might care to visit on any city. He then identified Munster in Germany as the New Jerusalem, which is obvious when you think of it, and off he hopped. There, he found that one Bernard Rothman had taken Munster away from the Catholic Church and it had become Lutheran. With the arrival of Mathis, Rothman found his life immeasurably more excited and he converted to Anabaptism. Meanwhile, Melchior announced that April 1534 was actually the date of the Second Coming, and all those people who had been gutted by the nobility in 1525 and deprived of their expected transformation flooded into the city to be ready for the coming of the saints when all of that would be put right. In February 1534, they seized control of the city of Munster from their authorities, and all around in northwest Europe, Anabaptism flourished with this evidence that the second coming was indeed just around the corner. Both Lutherans and Catholics stopped squabbling for a moment, looked at each other and said, right, we'll keep arguing everywhere except Munster. We both agree this lot have to go. And Bishop Waldeck laid siege to the city. For 17 months, the siege dragged on. Inside the city, Melchior declared to everyone that he was inviolable, could not be harmed because God would protect him and because this day, Easter Day 1534, was the day of the second coming and he led a sortie to chase away Waldeck. Predictably, he was captured, killed, dismembers, and his head stuck on a pike, as you do. Later that evening, an honest guard in Munster was minding his own business when he heard a knocking on the door. So he opened the door and found Melchior's genitals nailed there. Sweet. Also, in other news, the second coming didn't happen. So, a chap called Jan of Leiden, picked up the baton of leadership to usher in the second coming, whenever that might be, and protect the city from attack. He did a couple of things that were frowned on back then. Firstly, he announced he'd had visions and was therefore the successor of David and consequently was the boss. A monster was the new Zion. That wasn't the thing though. The frowned on thing was that he forcibly redistributed the property of the city for communal use. Right, now you're going too far. Declare yourself the successor of David. Well, we've all done that from time to time, but don't touch our property. 
Plus, he then declared that polygamy was the way to go, which is actually less daft than it might sound. For some reason, Anabaptism was very popular among women, and there were three times as many as women as men in Munster. Oh, and by the way, while all this was going on, everyone was starving because of the siege. Eventually, after 17 months, Waldeck broke in. Jan of Leiden and two other leaders were captured. When the time was right, red-hot pincers were applied to their bodies and they were ripped to bits. The remains of their bodies were hung in three cages from St Lambert's Cathedral. If you happen to visit Munster, I'm told you can see both cages and pincers. Anabaptism survived and grew elsewhere, generally non-violent from now on, usually underground. But let me take you back to the conservative group of folks under their tree back in Blighty. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how that story would have been viewed? All Henry VIII knew was that he would be a Dutchman's uncle before he allowed Anabaptists to come to England. His innate conservatism was seriously tweaked. His paranoia was fed. Under every rock and stone might learn an Anabaptist. It was not a good way to encourage calmness. Right, well, I had essentially no right or need to tell you that, but it's been gnawing at me. Next week, then, back to the narrative, to Jane Seymour, to Mary, to dissolution, and to a pilgrimage of a different kind. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.